My name is Libin, and get the joy of being uh, lead pastor here, and just so thankful for us to be together today. Uh, we are wrapping up a series called uh, Difference Makers Today, where we've been talking about the call of God on our life to share Jesus with the world. And last three, four weeks, we have been unveiling our heartbeat, our goal of having 4,000 cent conversations between this August and next July. Our ministry cycle, our fiscal cycle runs from August to July. And as we're thinking about God, what do you want to do in the life of our church uh, over this next ministry year? Our prayer is that together as a church body, we can have 4,000 cent conversations with people. A cent conversation is simply uh, an intentional spiritual conversation with someone who may not yet be a follower of Jesus. And we put that word may for a reason, because sometimes you can know somebody for many, many years, and you've never had a faith conversation or a spiritual conversation. Or maybe, maybe you meet somebody for the first time and you're curious. And so this is an invitation to lean in with genuine curiosity and genuine questions out of love to see where people are on their journey with God. And for us to have 4,000 cent conversations as a church body. So I want to just let you know over the last three weeks since we've introduced this goal of 4,000 conversations, we are already at 337 cent conversations. Amen. So way to go, church family. Keep it going. Keep it going. As we trust God and have these conversations with people, God is going to be faithful to save people. That's his job. Our job is to be obedient. Our job is to step in with courage and boldness, and God will be faithful to saving people. In fact, I want to tell you that as we share Jesus, Jesus saves people. As we share Jesus with the world, he will save people. And that's how the miracle of salvation happens. We step in with obedience and share Christ and he steps in with faithfulness and he saves people. Although the fact that in many of the miracles in the New Testament, not all, but in many of them, Jesus invited people to participate in miracles. In fact, if you think about the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children who were there, Jesus used the little lunch, the lunchable of a kid, of a little boy. My four-year-old would not have shared that lunch. But here's this boy who had five loaves and two fishes, and he said, okay, take it. And Jesus, who didn't need that, but he chose to use it, took the little of a little boy and did something great with it. In Mark 5, there's a woman with the issue of blood who has faith enough to say, if I can just push through the crowd and touch the hem of the garment of Jesus, I know I can be healed. And Jesus responded to her faith and said, woman, your faith has made you whole. In John 5, there's a man who's been paralyzed for, I think, 38 years. And Jesus comes to him on the scene in John 5 and says, do you want to be well? What, what kind of a question is that? And sometimes I wonder, what if he had said no? I don't think Jesus would have done the miracle because he was looking for an agreement. Do you want to be well? It took Peter getting out of the boat to walk on water. There was four men who once lowered their friend down the roof, tore open the roof. Imagine that happened in your house. Mad you'd be. Now they're lowering this man. Jesus saw their faith and healed him. Oftentimes, the miracles were instigated by the faith, the little faith of people. And people got to participate in some amazing moments. So I believe that as we share our faith, God's going to do the miracle of saving lives. But today, I want to tell you that we not only participate with God in the miracles that he wants to do by sharing our faith, we participate with God in the miracles he wants to do in the world by sharing our resources. I know it's going to be a quiet kind of sermon today. 
We don't just participate with Jesus by sharing our faith. We participate in the miracles God wants to do by sharing the resources he has given to us in our life. So I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, where Jesus is going to call his first disciples, and you're going to meet Simon and John and the sons of Zebedee here. And Jesus calls his first disciples by performing a beautiful miracle, but a miracle that required the resources of these men, the resources of these future soon-to-be disciples. So Luke chapter 5 opens up like this. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. This is a region of the Sea of Galilee. I mean, this is one of those verses that I wish I had, we had a little bit more commentary on. I mean, Jesus is teaching God's word. Like, what text was he preaching? Like, what was he talking about? Although we don't have that recorded, I do love the fact that every time we gather as a church family, we are doing today what Jesus did on that day. Opening up God's word to see what God has to say. Jesus is an amazing preacher, as you can imagine, but there's an operational problem. Crowds are pressing in. This is just a few years before live stream or they can join online. And a couple of years before speakers have microphones. And everyone is physically pressing in. But the problem is there's such a huge crowd, they can't hear Jesus. So how will Jesus fix this problem? So the crowds are pressing in. And Luke 5 verse 2 says... He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, whom we also know as Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. So Jesus is needing to amplify his sound. And he's thinking, like, if I can just get a little distant from the crowd, my voice will carry over. So he sees fishermen and he says, hey, can I borrow your boat? And he particularly asked Simon, let me sit in your boat and put the boat out a little bit. Here's what's amazing. Jesus could have supernaturally amplified his voice. He can do that. You know what else Jesus could do? He could even walk on water if he wanted to, because he can do that too. He could suspend himself midair and carry enough voiceover, whatever you call it, so that everyone can hear Jesus. But Jesus in this moment where we, he had to make sure that he could be heard, didn't do something supernatural or suspend himself in the air or amplify his voice in that way or walk on water. He sees Simon, a fisherman, He says, can I borrow your boat? Can I use your resource? Here we read that Simon is washing his nets, and that's what you do after a long night of fishing, and he's ready to go home, and he's called it a night. He's washing his net. His boat is dirty. Simon hasn't showered yet, and Simon has one of those nights that I would have if I was out all night fishing, catching nothing. I've had a few moments where I thought I caught something huge, and it was just seaweed and debris. And this is that kind of night for Simon and the guys. They caught nothing all night long. Now, when we go fishing and we catch nothing, it's no fun because we didn't catch anything. But for these guys, they're not fishing for fun. This is their means of survival. This is their livelihood. To have no fish that night means no paycheck. No means for that week to survive unless they experience something supernatural. So they're frustrated. They're disappointed after a night of catching nothing. They're washing their nets, just wanting to quit and go home. And here comes this rabbi asking, hey, can I borrow your boat? Simon's okay with that because the boat hasn't been very useful for him that night. So he says, sure, why not? He lets Jesus 
take the boat out so he can address the crowd. Simon's okay being a passive observant and just letting Jesus do his thing. But then after Jesus was done teaching the crowd, Jesus made it personal. And he turned to Simon, and Jesus has a request for Simon. Look at verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Wow, the audacity of this carpenter to tell this professional fisherman what to do. They've caught nothing all night. They're ready to go home. And Jesus tells Simon, throw down your nets into the deep for one more catch. It was common practice and common knowledge in Galilee that if you want to catch fish, you go at night and you fish in the shallows. That's where the fish are, at night in the shallows. But here, Jesus is asking Simon to do the exact opposite of what he has been trained to do. The very opposite of what he instinctually knows to do, which is fish at night in the shallows. Jesus comes to him and says, I want you to fish in the broad daylight in the deep. Get out of the shallows and into the deep. That's not what you do as a fisherman. But Jesus is turning Simon's worldview upside down and asks Simon to do something that he has never been able to do or to catch fish in the deep in broad daylight. So Simon is left with an option, do I follow this rabbi and do what makes no sense to me, do what seems illogical, or do I obey him? And you can imagine how frustrated Simon is. In fact, you don't have to imagine. Simon flat out says, and master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. Saying, hey, how about I leave the teaching to you and you leave the fishing to me? That's what he's thinking. But he's polite and says, master, we've been out all night. We know where to catch fish, and that's in the shallows at night, and you're asking us to launch our nets into the deep in broad daylight? Simon is reluctant, but then he says this phrase that changes everything. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. This doesn't make sense. I don't want to do this. This never would work. But if you say so. I love how the King James says it, nevertheless, at thy word, we will let down our nets. If you say so, doesn't make sense. We want to stay in the shallows, but if you say so, and you're launching us into the deep, we'll get out of the shallows and do what you say. Some of the earlier uh, translations or manuscripts have nets here. In singular form, if you say so, I'll let down the net. Meaning, Jesus asked Simon to let down the nets, plural. And his answer is, uh, I'll just let one down. <laughs> just a little bit of faith. I'll let even one net down. But here's the deal. Jesus could do a lot with just one net. He could do a lot with Simon's reluctant faith. With the sense of God, if you say so, I'll do it. Jesus could do a whole lot with just a little bit of faith. And that's all it would be required for Jesus to show Simon how powerful and glorious Jesus is. So Simon says, okay, if Jesus, this doesn't seem logical to me, but if you say so, I'll do it. And he does. And notice what happens as an outcome of it, just a little bit of faith in what Jesus can do. The next verse is, when they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began 
to sink. An unproductive, empty night is turned around just with a little bit of, if you say so, faith. Nevertheless, at thy word. And there in the deep, where Simon never expected any fish, Jesus had gathered all the fish he could imagine. And they all came jumping into Simon's net to a point that it began to tear. And Simon has to call in help. Other boats come in to help haul in this incredible catch. What a beautiful miracle. It's fascinating how Simon responds in this moment in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me because I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Amen. Simon is so humbled at the presence of Jesus. Simon knows how reluctant his faith was. Simon knows how unbelieving he was. Simon knows how sinful he is. Yet this Jesus comes into his boat. He comes into his sinful presence. And he allows him to experience the greatest catch of his life. Simon, who had just experienced the greatest failure of his life, is now humbled that Jesus would turn that around to the greatest victory, to the greatest success of his life. And his response is, Jesus, I'm so sinful. Please get away from me. Last week, Pastor C. Frizzell opened up Isaiah 6. But it's amazing how much parallel there is between Isaiah 6 and this chapter in Luke 5. Both Isaiah and Peter have an unsettling event in their life. For Isaiah, it was the death of King Uzziah. For Simon, it's a night of not catching anything. But they both see the Lord. Isaiah saw a vision of the throne of God. And Peter sees that same God in the flesh. They get a glimpse of God's glory, his provision, his power, his glory. And their immediate response, both for Isaiah and for Peter, is, woe is me. Remember how Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And Peter says essentially the same thing. I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. I don't deserve to be in your presence. At the glimpse of God's greatness, they both responded with remorse and repentance. But I love how in Isaiah and for Peter, God assures them. For Isaiah was a coal from the altar of God that cleansed his lips. And for Peter, it was Jesus saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. After they experienced the the grace of God in their unique ways, Isaiah would hear the voice from heaven, who will go for us? Whom shall we send? And Peter would hear from Jesus the words, follow me. You will become a fisherman of people. And they both said, yes. Isaiah said, here I am, sent me. And Peter and the rest of his friends left everything behind and followed Jesus. They see God, see his glory, repent of their sins, experience assurance and salvation in Jesus, and they're sent to people to talk about him. What an incredible miracle that moment for Peter. I think about this story, and it's clear that in Luke 5, it is Jesus who does the miraculous. It's all him. But notice how Jesus invites Simon 
to be a part of this miracle. I think about at least three ways that Jesus invites Simon. Jesus asks Simon, can I borrow your boat? Jesus asked to borrow Simon's boat. Then Jesus asked Simon to launch out into the deep, get out of the shallows, do what seems illogical and unreasonable, launch out into the deep. And lastly, Jesus would ask Simon to throw down his net, to throw down the nets into the deep. What if Simon had said no to any one of these things? He would have missed out on the greatest miracle, at least until that moment he had seen. But he responded with his obedience And he responded with giving his resources into the hands of Jesus. Jesus didn't have to have all those resources, the boat or the nets or anything. But Jesus worked this miracle in a way that involved the resources that Simon had. And his life was changed. Here's what Simon did. He gave Jesus his trust That's the if you say so. I'm trusting you. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm trusting you. But his trust was not in mere words. His trust was in the giving of his resources. His trust equated in offering his resources to Jesus. Here's my boat. Here are the nets. I'll go into the deep with you. I'm going to take you at your word, and I'm giving you the resources of my life. And Jesus did something amazing with the boat and net that Simon had. Jesus performed this miracle in partnership with Simon's everyday resources. And here's what I want you to consider from this passage. For the miracles that Jesus wants to do, which of your resources does he want to use? For the miracles that Jesus wants to do, which of your resources does he want to use? We've all got a boat. We've all got nets. And there is Jesus wanting to show himself to us and to do a miracle that will forever mark our lives. He can do it all by himself. But he says, can I borrow your boat? Can I borrow your net? I want to do a miracle through you. And in fact, I want to use your resources as part of the miracle that I want to do for such a time as this in the world. The truth is, Jesus is bringing all kinds of fish to Bentry. By fish, I mean people. This morning, we had a membership class of 20 to 30 people who are making Bentry their church home. It's amazing what Jesus is doing, but we're at a point where we need your boats. We need the nets that you have because we don't want our nets to tear. Notice how Simon sees all this fish coming. He invites people, hey, let's get our resources together. Bring your boats, bring your nets so that we can carry The incredible, miraculous work of God. So as God brings people, it requires every one of us to say, how can we gather people? How can we disciple people? How can we serve? How can we give? How can we use the resources in our hand for the miracles that Jesus wants to do? In our early childhood, which is birth to pre-K, over the last one year, we have grown in our early childhood by 100%. Meaning we have literally doubled in children. So thank you for having babies and inviting families with kids. <laughs> Amen. We've grown 100%. We've doubled. In special needs ministry, we've grown by 50%. And I'm so thankful that families in our community, they find Bentry to be a loving and safe and welcoming place for children and young adults with unique abilities and special needs. Online and in person, we have grown in the last several months by 30%. 
30% of people engaging with us online and in person. 30% growth online and in person. So thank you for sharing the stream and inviting people to join us. Thank you for inviting your friends. It is as if as we have set our heart to pursue our community, God is bringing the community. Our nets are getting fuller and fuller. But it's a chance for all of us who call Bentry home to say, what resources do I have to be a part of God reaching new people and discipling people and serving people to showing people the heart of God and stirring up their passions in ministry? What are your nets? What are your boats? That Jesus is saying, can I borrow that to catch people for the kingdom of God? I think at least one way it is to look at the spiritual gifts God's given you, your time, and to see how you can serve God with the gift of time by serving in one of our ministries. There are kids who need small group leaders, adult small group leaders, guest ministry, student ministry, whatever it may be. There are areas where you are beautifully needed because you've got spiritual gifts inside of you. God has given you the gift of time to share, and that could be a resource where you give an hour on a Sunday morning or during the week or on mission somewhere, and you're serving people with your gifts. Jesus does miracles when we serve people, when we make a difference by leading a ministry or being a part of ministry somewhere. I want to encourage you, if that's the next step for you, go to bentry.org serve or scan the QR code right in front of you, and you'll see the different ministries where you're needed or you can make a difference. Sometimes you think, well, maybe this is a large church. People have been here for a while. We've got all the needs covered. Oh, no, 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 no. We're waiting for you. There's a ministry area that you're called to meet. Maybe you've been a passive observant like Peter was, just letting Jesus do his thing. And this is the morning where Jesus is saying, actually, I want you to not just be a passive observant. Will you launch out into the deep? And let me use you to make a difference. Teach a child or a mentor or a student or lead a small group. Welcome people as they come in, serve with local ministries or local missions or global missions around the world. How could God be inviting you to serve in ministry? We need all the boats and all the nets for what Jesus is doing. The second way I think we can use our resources is our financial resources. It is taking the financial resources that God has given us and providing for the ministries in our church and for the missions around the world. It is letting God take are giving and multiply it so that more people can hear the goodness of Jesus and be discipled and experience the love of Jesus here at home and share that love all around the world. As we think about generosity and giving, we don't teach on giving a whole lot, but it is important. It is such a deep part of our discipleship, using the treasure of our heart to expand and and see the kingdom of God flourish in our lifetime. And I love this instruction that the apostle gives to the early church. You can imagine the early church, a church that started with 120 in the upper room, now exploding to thousands of people, all of the needs they had in the church, all the ministries that were happening within the church, and all of the missions around the world that they were a part of, just like we are today, from kids' ministry all the way to adults and and marriages and students and special needs and support groups and, and reaching unreached people groups around the world and advocating for children, bringing the light of the gospel to the dark darkest places in the world, there's tremendous opportunity. But it's our giving that sets the pace of the vision God has called us to. So Paul, when he describes the opportunity to join in 
on generosity. I love how Paul, within just two verses, gives us beautiful instructions on using our financial resources for what Jesus wants to do in the world. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2. Now about the collection for the saints. So he's speaking to believers, to a local church. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he or she is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. I want to just highlight a few ways in this passage that Paul invites us to live generously and to give generously. Here's way number one, that giving is to be regular. It's to be regular. Notice how Paul says on the first day of the week here, these believers would get paid every day. They would get their wages for their labor every single day. And Paul is saying, hey, save that. And when you come to church on the first day of the week, give joyfully out of what you earn that whole week. It's to be regular. And for us, that's every pay period or once a month or every other week, whatever it is that your rhythm is. Paul's inviting us to give regularly. Second of all, Paul says giving is to be personal. On the first day of the week, each of you, he's inviting every single person, men or women, who has some means of earning income. Paul is saying, each and every one of you, be a part of the journey of generosity, not just some Not just the 20% of the church carrying 80% of the load. Not just 50% or 60%. He says, I want each and every person to enjoy the joy of generosity and being a part of what God is doing in the world. No matter what that amount is, he's inviting all of us not to be forced into it or guilted into it, but as an act of worship, as an act of celebrating the goodness and the provisions of God that each of us, every single one of us, we get to be a part of putting our resources into the hands of Jesus, trusting that he can do with them far more than we could ever do with them. So giving is regular. Giving is personal, personal to you, personal in your worship. And each and every one of us gets to be a part of it. Third, Paul would say that giving is planned. It's planned. Notice what he says. Each of you is to set something aside and save. There are moments for spontaneous generosity and giving. That's beautiful. But here, Paul is saying, I want you to plan to give. Set something aside every week, every month, and plan to give. The only way we can do ministry consistently is through consistent giving that happens in and through you. So I would encourage you, uh, maybe pray and have a conversation with the Holy Spirit. Look at your finances and say, God, how could you use me? What can I set aside to be a part of kingdom work in the world? Next, Paul would say, giving is to be proportionate. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering or how she is prospering. Paul is saying it's not about the amount, but it's about the level of generosity. Meaning we may not be able to all give the same amount, but we can equally be generous. We can equally be sacrificial in our giving. So in proportion to how God is blessing you financially, how you are prospering, give a percentage of that through your local church to impact the world. The Old Testament, it was a tie. There was a 10%. And it was sort of a religious tax system that would take care of the ministries of the temple and the nation of Israel. Well, God doesn't require a tax today, but he wants your heart. He wants you out of the depths of your heart, being led by the Spirit to be generous. So don't really, you don't have to think about a number. There's many of us in this church who give 10%, some who give more, some who give less. But what is a threshold that makes you trust God with your resources? 
What's the threshold that makes you a little uncomfortable? That God moves you and says, would you go into the deep with the resources, whether of your time or your finances? What's the threshold that is spirit-led and empowered, causing you to put the treasures of your life, your financial treasures, into the kingdom of God? I love how Paul says, when you give like this regularly, each and every one of us personally, when we give a portion of what we have, when we give it planned, Paul ends it by like this. He says, so that no collection will have to be made. No collection will need to be made when I come. He's saying, look, when we do this, when we all do this, we're going to have more than enough resources to do what Jesus is calling us to do. I want you to know that at Bentry, there are over 745 households who regularly give. I'm thankful that we can be a generous church. But I also know that there are some of you who are visiting and you need the time to be able to wonder if this is the church home that God is calling you to. And your next step is discerning if this is your church home. But I also know there are many of you who have been here for a little while. And you call Bentry home and yet you've begun and you have yet to begin your journey of generosity. I'm asking you this month or next month, would you pray about how you can join in your net, put in your boat, the people that Jesus is bringing and gathering here at Bentry, it's so needed for the future of our church and for our present. It's a beautiful thing to join in on God's journey of generosity for our life. So I was in India this last week with our team of eight. We had an incredible opportunity to experience what God is doing in the second largest state of India, this beautiful mission of our church began over 20 years ago as God put it on the heartbeat of our leaders then to, to start a work in the midst of one of the most unreached people groups in the world. And Maharashtra has a population of 112 million plus people with less than 1% of those who are Christ followers. So God has been using Bentree powerfully over the last 20 years to launch a movement. And today... We have graduated over 150 church planters. We've started 80 churches and 451 house churches, reaching 8,000 people, all because of vision and heartbeat of our church. We got to thank God for that. It's beautiful. In fact, while we were there, we saw over 21 baptisms of people who are first-generation Christians, first one in their home to profess faith in Jesus. And uh, there's a few pictures that we'll go through, but uh, they drove, get this, five hours one way to come be baptized. Five hours one way to be baptized. And they're going to be going into some really hostile places as they return back home. And over a year ago, we got to inaugurate a beautiful training center. By the way, which you, we as a church, 100% funded the building of an incredible hub for ministry. So you ought to thank God for the generosity of our church. And this training center has become an incredible hub of training leaders and training church planters. And, and we have a one-year training program, but it's also become the hub of, of bringing the hope of the gospel and the work of reformation in poverty-stricken places. And we're, we're training people how to sow and, and get out of a lifestyle of poverty and sending church leaders. And it's an amazing thing what's happening in this training center. And when we were there, we got to be part of a graduating class of six individuals who have finished their one-year journey through this training center. And when they're there, they're living there. And the first six months, they're living there. And the second six months, they're on the field. And on their graduation day, they get to be told where they're going to go plant a church. They don't know that until that day. 
It's pretty amazing the level of faith that they have and the level of surrender. I gotta tell you, you see Kurt Baxter here? He has been the face, one of the key leading faces of our ministry in India. And he's right there. I think we ought to just appreciate what God is doing in and through Kurt Baxter. Thank you, Kurt. He's like the godfather of those in India. They just look up to him as so endeared and so loved. And men like Jim Burmeister, who's with the Lord, and others, so many others have been used powerfully that God has used. I want to tell you the story of one individual who graduated when we were there. His name is Francis. Francis was one of the six who graduated. And like the others, when he said yes to being a part of this program, he left behind his family for six months. And he particularly had a wife and a daughter. He left them behind in their town, and he came and lived, and they live here on our campus, on the ADP Training Center, which, by the way, they call it Bentry India, which is pretty cool. When he left, he had a small job, and his wife had a small job, but when he left, he had to leave his job and trust that God will provide for their family, and they were given a small stipend by our ministry there to be taken care of. So he had, right before he left, he bought just enough groceries, and, and they don't have electricity, so they bought a gas tank on which, through which they can cook their meals, and for his whole life, a gas tank lasts about two and a half months. But he knew that with his wife's job, they'll be able to buy another one as the months went by and hopefully be able to hold over until he gets back home after six months. As soon as he began his program, his wife lost her job as well. And now this family was in deep financial trouble. And Francis said, I've already been sent out to the deep waters. I can't go back. So I'm going to trust God. And his family says, you stay there and you trust God. He'll provide for us. For six months, he went not knowing how his family was even doing. He would be able to call them. But every time he called his wife, she would say, we're doing just fine. You just keep going. You finish the program. You need this. We need this. You keep going. He would ask his daughter, honey, how are you doing? And she would say, we're doing just fine, dad. They didn't want him to worry. They didn't want him to be distracted. So he finished his six months of living on the campus and being trained. And then finally, after six months, he gets to go home and be with his family. And he did that and he gives them a big hug and they're so excited to see him. And once he gets home, his daughter said, Daddy, could you make tea for us? You do such a great job of making tea. We haven't had your tea in six months, so please come make tea for us. And of course, he was so thrilled to do so. And he goes into the kitchen using the gas tank. He makes the tea. And his wife and daughter said, Honey, we want to tell you something you're not going to believe. But that gas tank you bought six months ago, we've used that every single day, and we've never had to replenish it. We've never had to replenish it. And they were right. He didn't believe, so he went and checked the date. And for his whole life, a gas tank lasted two and a half months. Now it's been six months. It's a modern-day Elijah and the widow's oil story. So he gets there, and the gas tank, from the moment he got there six months in, lasts another two and a half months, and it's as if God froze the time clock on that gas tank until he could get back home and be able to provide for his family again. Why do I tell you that? I'm telling you that because you can trust God in the deep. You can get out of the shallows and do what seems illogical through our human brains and our human mind and take God at his word. Give God the resources, as limited as it might seem. What if you went out into the deep and trusted God against human logic and trusted him to provide? 
What you learn from Simon's story, Luke 5, and Francis' story is that if Jesus is calling you into the deep, whatever that might be, whether it be sharing your faith courageously with a friend or a coworker or giving of your time and serving one another in ministry or giving of your financial resources, you can never outgive God. He is faithful. He is good. He always provides. So here's my question. What are your boats? What are your nets? The Jesus, for the miracles he wants to do, wants to use. So I've thought about this passage of scripture. My prayer has been, God, let me not be found at the end of my life keeping the nets clean and keeping the boat clean. Washing my nets, hanging my nets, and keeping it all clean and pristine when you actually want to use it. We can either spend our life or we can invest our life. I'm asking us as a church family, let's invest our life in God's kingdom. His gospel, his good news being shared all across our world, the world, our community, and the world around us. What could God do if we left the shallows and launched into the deep?